brilliant. That always reminds me of the English Patient, if you know that film. That's sort of way in. It's brilliant. Fantastic. Thanks, Matt. Isn't it great? We're so blessed here with worship, aren't we? Oh, my goodness. Such a blessing. Um, we just have such an amazing privilege to have some great musicians here in Georgia tonight. Absolutely amazing. Thank you, Georgia, for joining our team. Really, absolutely brilliant. And Andy, thank you. Uh, John, thank you for joining our team. John's also secretly a brilliant pianist, not just playing the keys. So um, it's, just, it's, so, it's such a wonderful thing um, just to see people who are gifted musically sharing their gifts. Apologies to everyone who heard the stream two weeks ago when I sang powerfully and forgot to turn off my microphone. And then we're watching online. If that was you, I'm really sorry. That isn't representative of the worship ministry here at St. Dionys. That was accidental. Uh, and I hope that you will, uh, you will come and enjoy worship in person here. I will not sing too loudly or microphones in any way. We are going to continue our series tonight uh, on the complete Jesus, as you know. And we're going to read uh, from John uh, chapter 14 and um, starting at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father." And I'll do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. Well, Lord, we want to pray tonight, again, for greater revelation of who you are. And Lord, like Philip, we want to ask the question, who are you? Who are you, Lord? Uh, would you bring revelation to us in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, we've looked at some pretty heavy heresies so far, and uh, as you guys know in the morning, I'm like sweating to think of an illustration to explain the Trinity to a five-year-old. This morning, I was sweating to illustrate Apollinarianism uh, to uh, five to seven-year-olds, uh, and I'm, uh, hopefully we're going to um, get into the grist of this tonight. I was encouraged this morning because uh, one of my friends who's joined the morning service, Brian, he said, he said you know, I said, oh, you know, how are you, getting, how are you going with this stuff? This sort of, he, said, he said, there was an American um, philosopher who said, I don't care about simplicity on this side of profound, but I do care about simplicity on this side of profound. I felt really blessed by that statement. He suggested that there was a sort of profundity in the middle and then you get back to simplicity again. He seemed to thought we, we crossed the boundaries. You guys couldn't be the judge of that tonight. We're talking about Apollinaris of Laodicea, and this guy was a bishop. He was a really solid Christian. He had great heritage. His dad was actually also a bishop, and they had spent a long time in what was quite a sort of privileged church. Laodicea was kind of a significant church. It was a bit like being the Archbishop of York, probably, in the scheme of big churches. Not quite Jerusalem, but, but, but you know, not far off. And a significant seat of learning, of intellect, and, and a really profound wrestling with the Scriptures. And they had a particular reference point of teaching the Bible to a Greek audience. 
And this wasn't a kind of pushover Greek audience. This was a skeptical and academic Greek audience. And the thing about this particular guy, Apollinaris, if you read any of his stuff, you've got the sense that he's kind of a mathematician. No offense to any mathematicians who might be here gathered. But there's this sort of orderly sense in his mind that he kind of wants to reduce things down into some sort of equation to make sense of who Jesus really was in the light of the Trinity. Remember, these guys in this particular period, so he died in 390, so he's a kind of, you know, he, he's a, a, a fourth century kind of dynamic theologian who's building on uh, a basis of lots and lots of previous guys in the sort of 150 years um, running up to his life that they've been wrestling with the big questions of Christian faith. And these were all intellectual people. They've been wrestling pretty deep, pretty hard for quite a long time. They had significant amount of, of first, um, first-hand material evidence. They had all these codexes knocking around, lots and lots of paperwork to kind of get into, lots and lots of big meetings. It's funny how Christians love meetings, isn't it? Lots of councils. Let's have another council. Let's all get together. Come on, let's talk about all this sort of stuff. They had these big councils. So he's, he's kind of in the midst of all this, this great seat of learning, but, but he wants to reduce Jesus down to some sort of formula that makes sense of two key questions. And the questions that Apollinaris had were, firstly, how could Jesus be truly God without losing his humanity? So that was the kind of key question that we heard previously. We looked at Arius, who said, mm, probably not really God, actually probably more man. And we looked at the Docetics who were like, yeah, Jesus is, is spirit, he's kind of apparition, he's you know, an impression of God, he, he's definitely not at human, he's kind of pretending to be human. So he's still wrestling with some of those early questions. In a sense, Apollinaris was trying to make sense of Jesus' own claims in John chapter 4 when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He said, okay, well, Jesus has made these pretty bold claims just here. And he's saying, actually, um, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So there's something incredibly significant about Jesus' claim uh, right here. If you really know, knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You can't get away from these fantastic claims that Jesus made about himself. And, and people in the street will often say, yeah, Jesus was a wise sage. You know, they're effectively Arian. They're saying, yeah, Jesus was just one of us. He was, a, he was a human. He was wise. I love the wise words of Jesus. And then you'll get sort of docetics as well who are sort of, yeah, I think Jesus was kind of a spirit. I think he was kind of a spiritual guy. He probably wasn't really like us. You know, if he was, then, you know, he would have messed up like everyone else and he would have struggled like everyone else. But, you know, he was kind of, you know, he was sort of a spiritual spirit, a spirit thing. Jesus is making really big claims, saying he's fully human and he's fully God, and if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Now, this is remarkable in a Hebraic sense to suggest that you could see God, because that in itself in an Old Testament position would have said, well, then you're probably going to die. Remember, Moses had to hide into the cleft of the rock just to see the back of God, lest he disappear, because, you know, God's glory was too great for him to see. So that would have been pretty tricky for them. And from a Greek perspective, you know, the idea to, of, of seeing God, in a sense, was also pretty off-limits. You know, Zeus was like a power in the sky. Oh, lightning, there's a bit of Zeus action. And the best you're going to see is a demigod. Oh, look, there's, you know, someone running out of Sparta uh, who's looking strong, and he's probably a bit of a god. Uh, god probably had, you know, one of the gods, whatever, there, over there with that beautiful lady. And then, then you've got that person. So you've got this sort of half-god idea. 
But the idea that you could see Zeus face to face, you know, this sort of idea was, was, was ridiculous. This sort of, there's the bridge, the gap was too great between man and God. So Apollonius is trying to make sense of these claims, uh, and, you know, and, he, and, and he's, he, he's struggling. He's got this solid reputation for wrestling with this stuff because actually Apollonius fought Arius over the whole idea that Jesus was just a man. Uh, you know, he really did some significant work on that, and he becomes a bishop, as we know, and he supports the Nicene Creed, which is the creed that, if you like, celebrates the orthodoxy of Jesus being co-substantive with God, that him and God are of the same substance. But at the same time, his Greek context and his reaction to Greek religion drive him to make a, a paradox into an equation. Remember, Luther said, if it's not a paradox, it's probably not God. And so whilst everyone else around the Council of Nicaea is saying, it's a mystery. Don't you hate it when people say, it's a mystery. I do that to my kids all the time. Dad, what was this? It's a mystery. It's algebra. It's a mystery. <laughs> no, Dad, that's definitely an answer. My teacher says that has to be. No, it's true. It's a mystery. You know, this idea that, you know, a mystery is unsatisfying. But, but, but in this period of the third and fourth century, there was a, it was a support, it was a kind of a theological position to say that mystery was actually good. There was something mysterious about the nature of God, and we couldn't work it all out. And the Apollinarius is thinking that Jesus maybe needs to be defended against a Greek audience. So he's quite academic, he's in the market square, he's preaching and teaching, and people might be saying things like, well, you know, I don't think Jesus is that different to one of the Greek demigods. And he's saying, no, 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 Jesus is far more than that. He is God. Oh, how can he be God and also a man? So he wants to find a solution. And ironically, Apollinarius uses a common Greek division to create a theological model that seems to work. You all know, I'm sure, of the Platonic division. We still talk about the Platonic division today. And this is the idea that you can separate a human into three core parts. And those parts are the sarks, which is the body, your actual physical matter, the psyche, which is the lower soul of a person, which we now apply to psychology, the emotions, the seat of the emotions, uh, and then finally the pneuma, which was actually the mind, although the same word pneuma we translate as spirit. But the idea that the Greeks had, particularly seated in Plato, was the idea that humans had a body, uh, they had low emotions, the psyche, and then they had a high pneuma, which was their rational mind slash spirit. Now, what Plato had done was elevate the pneuma over other parts of the body. So the Greeks didn't care too much about the sarks. Uh, they didn't actually think that much about the psyche, but they really loved the pneuma. And if you wanted to be elevated in Greek culture, you demonstrated your learnedness. Uh, Plato even had this idea of a pneumatocracy, which was really a, 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 some sort of a, a hideous government <coughs> which was run just by super intelligent people. You're always thinking, what's wrong with that? <laughs> you know, what's wrong with that? That sounds great. Uh, a government run by just really, really intelligent people. But if you separate your sarks and your psyche, you can be really, really intelligent, but also really, really unkind. And we've seen governments like that in the last 150 years. So what we need to suggest instead that, is that we shouldn't be dividing the body in that kind of a way, but Apollinarius says, hmm, I wonder if there's a way of protecting the pure nature of God and also the raw humanity of Jesus. Um, so I, I, let's make this simple. Um, uh, who's going to help me? Justin, come and give me a hand. Thanks, buddy. Um, 
So, so with my Play-Doh here, you, you come up, Justin, and, and, and you hold on to those two bits. They're, they're sort of loosely modeled. Okay, so, that's, um, so this, is, uh, this is God the Father and the Holy Spirit in the Trinity right now. Okay, and here is Jesus modeled over. Oops, there's Jesus modeled over here. Right. Now, this is Jesus, and he's come down to earth. Now, this is significant in the sense that now Jesus is on earth, he's already sort of apparently separated from God the Father and the Holy Spirit, although the Trinity is still unified. Um, but, but how can this Jesus still be part of this Trinity? So what Apollinaris said was, let's get rid of the pneuma of Jesus and take off his head, and, and we'll remove his high mind and will replace his mind with the divine logos, which, as you know, is the word of God or the sort of spirit center of God. And will model and fashion out of the logos, the divine logos, the mind of God and put that onto the mind of Jesus. Now we've got a brilliant model because actually Jesus' body is fully human, Jesus' low spirit is fully human, and Jesus' head is entirely God. Now, because we've got quite a low view of the body and of the emotions, we can do this work because actually this bit is really the only bit that matters. So to a Greek audience, really what's happened is that Polinarius has made a really simple step. Now all the Greeks are going, brilliant, oh yeah, I love it. He can be fully God and also the man bit's kind of there as well, but that doesn't really matter because he's really truly God and truly man. And and, and, you know, why not? It seems to be. Justin, you've been brilliant. Thank you for modeling that perfectly to me. Now, clearly there are massive flaws in Apollinaris' idea. Uh, and, and that's that, is this fusion between the mind of God and the body of man really human? Surely, if your mind has been displaced and replaced by the mind of God himself, you're no longer human, seeing as your brain is no longer a human brain, it's a divine brain. And, and, and if that's the case, you know, do, do you appeal fully to humanity? Equally, do you appeal fully to divinity? Because how can the, if you like, fleshly body of Jesus, the sarks, and the low emotional seat be kind of derided in this way and yet still be worthy of full participation in the Holy Trinity. So really Apollinaris hadn't fixed anything. In fact, he'd broken the problem even more. He'd actually created something which didn't fit at all. It was no longer a mystery, it was just a misfit. And what we have to recognize here is actually that this model doesn't really look like this at all. That, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all co-joined I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Sorry to do this, Hannah. This is going to waste a huge amount of Play-Doh, but it's worth it for the theological benefits. <laughs> Sorry. People come to this church, they're thinking, what's going on here? I've got no idea. Okay, right. So that's much more like what the Trinity really looks like. It's kind of inseparable, what we call interpenetrating that actually God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are truly unified, cannot be separated, and as much as God is in Jesus, Jesus is also in God. Isn't that a remarkable and powerful truth? 
And if Jesus is in God, if you know and love Jesus and Jesus dwells in you, you are also in God, or what we call in Christ. So you in Christ become part of this Play-Doh. It's exciting. It's remarkable. It's theologically profound that you belong within the Holy Trinity because you belong within Christ himself. Now, I love the idea that you have full participation because Christ has full participation in God in that way. So, Apollonius' model uh, it perfectly resolves and terribly fails to resolve uh, this problem. Uh, and he thinks, ah, John 1.14, the word became flesh, or Philemon 2.7, being made in the likeness of man. He sort of answered a few of these challenging questions. But when we read the scriptures around the nature of Jesus, we tend to find descriptions of divinity or humanity. It's really hard, isn't it, to work this out when you read the Bible because you see one minute Jesus is weeping uh, at the death of Lazarus and the next minute Jesus is feeding 5,000 people with a couple of loaves and fishes. It's a bit like predestination and free will. In, in, in Holland, we'd say it's like a house with a long gable. We, we like houses with long gables in Holland. If you look out of the right-hand window, you can see the gable that leads to predestination. And if you look out of the left-hand window, you can see the gable that leads to free will. But what you can't do is look out of that window and that window at the same time. You know, it's very, very difficult. You can't see the two things in the same moment. And in the person of Jesus, it's very difficult to look one moment at the humanity fully and the next moment at the divinity fully and kind of keep your perspective. Both of those things are real. And actually, the gables of the house meet over your head. It's just a bit above your head. Uh, and I want to kind of encourage you all to, to see the fullness in your perspective of God as fully divine and fully human and knowing that these things meet somewhere. But like Apollinarius, you don't have to make this equation plain. It can literally be a little above you. It, Apollinaris was roundly rejected for three reasons pointed out by councils and bishops. Firstly, all of Jesus is human in the Bible. There's no kind of qualification of a part of him that isn't human. Secondly, Jesus without a human mind is not human. And thirdly, without a human mind, our minds, most importantly, would be excluded from redemption. So stay with me right now. So if we are to be redeemed in fullness, do you all want to be fully redeemed? Is there anything you want to leave on earth? Everyone's going, yeah, my toes. <laughs> yeah, my nose is a bit... Anyway, um, look, you, know, you might be thinking that there's some stuff you'd like to leave behind. But imagine leaving your mind behind. Imagine, actually, that Jesus didn't really die in completeness that actually his, his mind, his pneuma, had been removed and exchanged for the pneuma of God. Then when Jesus died on the cross, his mind would not have been redeemed, since his mind is not his mind, and therefore our minds also are not redeemed in association with his mind. A whole Jesus had to die in order that a whole Jesus might be raised. And if a whole Jesus didn't die, whatever wasn't redeemed in Jesus isn't redeemed in us. That's problematic. Some of you are going, that sounds quite complicated, but, but imagine it's missing. Something is missing from the offering. If it's missing from the offering, it's not redeemed. And if it's not redeemed for him, it's not redeemed for you. So it was essential that Jesus died in fullness as a human in our place because anything less, 
anything other isn't a sufficient sacrifice for you or me. And I'm sure we'd all be the first to say, Lord, redeem my mind of all the things in me that need redemption. My mind needs redemption. You know, it's our mind. It's, the seat. it's our thoughts that lead to our actions. We need our mind to be redeemed. And so in Christ, our minds need to be redeemed. To put it plainly in Tim's brilliant helicopter analogy, this would be like God throwing out the body of Jesus and the emotions of Jesus from the helicopter. And the body of Jesus, which sounds like a strange idea, but just the body of Jesus is wrapped around this surfer, which would be quite a frightening situation to be in, in the water. A headless body is holding you in the water, uh, murmuring how much it loves you because it's very emotional. But the head of Jesus has been left in the helicopter thinking very profound thoughts. Now, this would not be a rescue. The reality is that this, this is a segregation or separation of the person of Jesus. It's insufficient. If God didn't just send out the body and the emotions of Jesus to the earth. He sent out the full Son, mind, body, and spirit to be a sufficient sacrifice for you and I. And Throughout that reality, God stayed in full contact with his son. You could argue, apart from that moment on the cross where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we can have more discussions about that. Did the, me and Lucy having some good discussions. Did the Trinity break at that point? Probably too traumatic to say it broke. The Trinity is, God is immutable. That means he doesn't change. But there was some moment at which there was great loss, great pain, great separation. And again, it's probably a little above our heads, but, but the truth is the sacrifice was real and full and for you and for me. Now, how do we make that real for us today? How can we, how can we, what can we learn from this moment? Well, for me, Apollinarius fundamentally reduces the love of God for us in salvation. Effectively, Jesus becomes, if you like, a semi-robotic host to the mind of God rather than the full person who we've described just now in sacrifice. Now, I hate the idea that God created a problem and then created a resolution to the problem that costs him nothing. Effectively, ah, I know, I will, I will place my mind in the mind of Jesus and Jesus will be this vehicle for redemption. Um, and therefore, because my mind is effectively going to be untouched by this experience of suffering and sacrifice, and because it's my will that's driving this forward, no one's really suffering here. Jesus hasn't even got his own mind in suffering. That, that, that God kind of is operating like a puppet master from a distance. Well, when we think about will, we recognize that, that the profundity of the Christian message is not just that God sent Jesus to die for us, but, but that Jesus' will was to agree with God on a journey of redemption for each and every one of us, despite the fact that it cost him everything that he had. Think about sacrifice for a moment. Um, can you really sacrifice if you're ultimately directed by someone else, if someone else is calling the shots? Are you sacrificing or just obeying orders? You know, if you're told to, you know, if someone jumps you with a gun and says, give me all your money, and you empty your wallet for them, which I would, uh, are you sacrificing or are you just afraid? I'm just like, yeah, have all my money. But if I'm walking along the street and there's someone who looks homeless and destitute and I get out my wallet and I give them all my money, no one's holding a gun to my head, is that sacrifice? 
Yes, because it's a decision of my will. I decide to it. I decide to do it. I choose to make a sacrifice. I'm not forced to sacrifice. You see, if Jesus' mind was invaded by the mind of God, and ultimately the mind of God steamrolls the will of Jesus, Jesus is not willing for anything. He's not actually choosing to make any sort of sacrifice. He's ultimately just doing whatever the mind of God is telling him to do. And this is really problematic for us all as Christians. Because in my experience, Christians have this idea that, that being a Christian is about letting go of all their faculties and letting the mind of God take over their mind. It's like, oh, I hear the mind of God. And people come to me because of the emotional health ramifications of some of this and say, I'm not sure what shoes I should wear. This is a genuine problem. Because I was praying about it this morning and I didn't think I got a clear revelation from God about which shoes I should wear. Now, it sounds like an interesting problem. It's a painful problem. But, but it's this idea that the mind of God will tell us what we should do now. You know, and, and sometimes charismatic Christianity can lean into this lack of health because it starts becoming some obsession to get God, like the great fortune teller in the sky, to tell us exactly what we should do next. Like, should I do this? Oh, should I do that? Oh, God, should I do this? I'm thinking, God's really quite busy right now. You know, put salt and vinegar on your chips or don't, but don't ask him about it. And this idea that, you know, we, we bring God into every single moment, not because we will God's presence in our lives, but because we actually have let go of any sort of sense of authority or ownership in our own actions. We're called not to, not to replace our minds with the mind of God, but to conform our wills to the will of God. And that is completely different. And, and, and I think we can excuse ourselves in sin here. And I'm just talking to myself here. I know that this has been part of my story. To say, I, I remember growing up in a Christian church where this was quite a big thing. You know, say, well, look, clearly I've not got the mind of God. My mind's like the bowels of hell. So I'm not going to get much through. I'm not going to fix it. And surely the mind of God is not going to fix my mind. So I might as well just get on with all the other stuff. You know, you sort of, you give yourself license to say, well, the mind of God hasn't really invaded my mind, so, well, God, you know, whenever your timing's right, if you'd like to invade my mind, then I'll start doing some good stuff, but for now, I'm just going to have fun. So, we, we actually renege our authority and place the blame for our actions on God because we're expecting a kind of, that kind of divine transaction that my brain is going to be vacating my head and God's brain is going to entering it, but that's not what conversion looks like. That's not even what discipleship looks like. Discipleship looks like falling in love with God and with his will, and then your will mutates to be in line with the will of God because you love God. Like, imagine I had a massive party in my mum's house. Loads of people came. It was really exciting, but there was a, a quite a lot of booze, and it got a bit out of control, and people started kind of getting a bit wild and moshing in my mum's front room, and... and glassware and china started flying around and breaking and um, pictures were kind of getting scratched and defaced I don't walk into the room and go excuse me everyone this house belongs to Mrs. Vanderhart and her house rules dictate that no moshing should take place in the living room no uh, glassware or chinaware should be broken and no pictures should be defaced I don't come in and and make the instruction I jump in the room and I'm shouting and I'm furious and my, 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 my sarks is involved. I'm physically trying to stop them breaking the stuff. You know, my, my, my psyche is involved because I'm feeling emotional about the fact they're breaking the stuff. You know, my pneuma is involved because I'm saying, guys, stop breaking my stuff. This is my mum's house. Why am I doing it? Why am I stopping them? It's because I love her. I love my mum. 
I don't care about her China, but I love her, and I know she cares about her China, so why wouldn't I stop them? I I don't go in to tell them the rules. I go in to tell them to stop because I love my mum. Like, the reality is that if we live like this, wrapped up in God, we, we don't make arbitrary choices because the Bible tells us so. We make arbitrary sacrificial choices because we love God and we want to be obedient to Him. We want our will to conform to His will. Now, I have, I have discussions with people saying, well, can I get away with that? Okay, you can get away with whatever you like. It really doesn't matter. Like, choose whatever you want to choose. But what that just says to me is how depressing that your will has not conformed to the will of God. Have you not asked yourself what you think God wants, His good, pleasing, and perfect will? When you have, then maybe you'll be able to answer that question for yourself. Like, the reality is we've got to be bedded into this stuff. We've got to want it for ourselves. There's a great verse in Romans 12 too, one of my favorite verses, particularly around the sort of mental, emotional health side of things. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Like, it is the renewing of your minds, not the replacement of your minds that makes you a Christian. Like, you do not have a mind transplant, but your mind is renewed. I remember when I really made a commitment to Jesus and was filled with the Holy Spirit, I used to swear a lot. Like, if there was a swear jar near me, I would be broke. But what was really amazing was, when I really became a Christian and was filled with the Holy Spirit, what, what happened to me was, I noticed that swearing just began to drop out of my vocabulary. And I began to align my will in my language to what I believe the will of God was for my language. And it wasn't really a great pain to me. Like, no one feels agony about stopping swearing. It's not like you suddenly feel a pain that you've missed a word that you feel that you should have used. It just began to filter out. And actually, that became not just a natural phenomenon, but also a discipline. And that led to the transformation of my language through the renewing of my mind. But God didn't come down and flick a switch and turn it off. I had to participate with him, which is what we call in theology corporeal action, which is an aspect of the mystery of the Trinity. It's interpenetrating, and God is working with us in action. He is creating in us a pure heart. Thank you, God. Now, isn't that an amazing thing? You're not a static model to be kind of shaped in function. You're not like a sort of disconnected project that God's got going on on the side. Like, oh, who shall I work on today? Oh, I'll work on Sam. I've got some spare time. It's going to take a while. Oh, uh, you know, <laughs> he, he doesn't think like that because we are in perpetual supernatural motion. You are a perpetually malleable clay in the hands of God. When God sets out in your day, he sets out with your heart in his hands. He wants to transform you into the likeness of his son, not by replacing your character, but by transforming your character. And there's so much stuff about you that he loves and celebrates right now, so it's not like he's like, oh, this is a bit rubbish, I better start making something better. He's saying, this is gorgeous, and if I just polish it a little bit here and there, it will shine even more brightly. That's what God feels about you. That's what Apollinaris totally missed. It's like the intricate depth of God's investment in your transformation journey. It's just like this. You are in God, and God is in you. Let's pray, shall we? Why don't we stand? Matt and the band are going to come.
Maybe just open your hands uh, as a sign of your openness to God. Jesus, we want to thank you. Thank you that you are fully man and fully God for our sake. We, we see the paradox and we celebrate it. And Lord, we want to say we, we know it meets somewhere above our heads. And we, we trust in you for that, the fullness of God's glory in the person, in the human of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we want to be wrapped up in your supernatural story. And we want to pray right now for the softness of heart to say, Lord, renew my mind. Transform my mind. May my body and my psyche follow suit. May this great trinity of my humanness be wrapped up in this great trinity of holiness. Lord, I long to take responsibility to play my part in this story. And I thank you for the part that you're already playing on my behalf. Jesus, would you make me excited about transformation? Reconnect me again to the wonder of the fact that your hands are all over my life every moment of every day. Thank you that I please you in Christ just as I am. But I please you too much for you to leave me just as I am. You long to make me shine. And Lord, I want to pray tonight that I'd be open to greater transformation in the name of Jesus. Amen.